Welcome to Crosswords, the podcast about practical Christianity. What does it look like to walk in Jesus' footsteps? How do I live in a culture hostile to godliness? These are questions that we'll answer on each podcast as we get our heart and mind on Jesus. All scriptures quoted are from the New International Version. You can follow me on Twitter at Kingdom underscore Saint. Walk with the Lord today and be a blessing. Good afternoon, family. It's a pleasure to be with you here on the first day of the week, as usual. Even though it's not in person, can't wait till that day when in person we'll be able to hug again and I'll be able to see you and we'll be able to have a conversation face-to-face. We anxiously await that day. Last week, we started a topic about developing intimacy with God. Our Lord is a living being, and there's nothing more important to him than developing intimacy with his creations, like any human would want to do with their children, family, or friends. To develop intimacy, communication is needed. Not just any kind of talking, although that would do at the beginning, but intentional transparency, humility, and empathy. This is often a challenge for those of us who may be emotionally unavailable or vulnerable for some reason or another. But it is something that we can learn to do in order to rejoice and be glad and taste and see that the Lord is good. Last week, we talked about being full of the Word of God. His words is how God is communicating with us at this moment. When God spoke to the Israelites on Mount Sinai, they could not tolerate His holy voice. His voice is too holy for us to be even able to hear directly. Even when John came to face face to face with the risen Jesus, he said that his voice was like the rushing of many waters. I don't know if you've ever heard Niagara Falls, but it is a thunderous roar. It's like many thunders. Ezekiel and John both describe God's voice like this. God gave us his very words in a way that we can take them at this time. And yet, Many refuse to take them as they are, as the Bible, as the living word of God, sharper than any double-edged sword, dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. Mankind has never seen anything like these words. To this day, mesmerizing, troubling, and convicting souls on this earth. That's how powerful God's word is. In John's vision in Revelation 10.10, John says, I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. The word of God is as sweet as honey. David also says that in Psalm 119. And because of its power, its warnings, its good news, it can sometimes make our stomach do some somersaults. Have you ever been so frightened that your stomach was doing somersaults? Have you ever been so excited? (laughs) Also, it has the same effect on your stomach. That's how powerful God's word is when we internalize the message God has for us. We need to listen to him and be full of his word. Now, we're going to do a little bit of a Bible study on how to speak to God. We talked about how to listen to God. Let's talk about how to speak to God. 
So in order to get some context on this, let's examine a Greek phrase, en neumati. What does that mean? That translated in English means in the spirit. And there are quite a few uses of this term in the New Testament, and we're going to explore how it's used. The first definition is to be in a spiritual state, to have a vision, or to be in a trance, as we will see here in some of these verses. Revelation 1.10, John will say here, On the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. So the Apostle John had many visions while in the Spirit. Visions are manifestations that are perceivable with the senses. God allows us to sometimes take a peek at the eternal, at the unseen, as he did with many. And that is written in the New Testament. In Acts 10.10, we see a bit of a different take on this. In Acts 10.10, speaking about the Apostle Peter, it reads, He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. Okay, so the trance here is, the Greek word means to be displaced in the mind. It also can mean to be amazed, to be astonished. Something is happening. You're being revealed something, but in your mind, like a dream. Uh, we're going to look at a second definition here in Matthew chapter 22, verse 43 through 44. And the definition here of being in the spirit is to inspire or stimulate to action. So when we read this, he said to them, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Jesus said this in reference to David. David wrote many of the Psalms, and Jesus confirmed that David was speaking by the Spirit. He was inspired, he was stimulated to do something, in this case, to write. So Peter gives us an explanation of how this happens in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 through 21. It's a marvelous thing. He says here, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So men, there were certain men that were inspired by the Holy Spirit, and this is what we call the Scripture. And it's an interesting thing how this happened. It wasn't like we would imagine a boss dictating a letter to the secretary. Sometimes people use that as an analogy where the secretary, although she is physically writing, she's not the author, it's the boss who's dictating. But this is something a little different because these men, their characters were preserved, their style, their person, so much so that we can identify who wrote each of the letters by their style, their personality. But the wisdom that they show, uh, the knowledge, it all comes from the Spirit of God, not from their own prejudices, not from their own judgment, and certainly not their own opinion. This is what separates the Bible from anything else that human beings have written. They can, that, that can easily be dated by the perspective of people limited to their time, place, and ignorance. But the scriptures are timeless. Man is not capable of writing about things that they cannot grasp or even comprehend. Even write 
to eloquently or authoritatively and without contradicting each other about these eternal truths. So timeless is the scripture that they are relevant to every time, any culture of any day. 40 different people from all walks of life, from nomads to businessmen to kings to fishermen, covering a span of 1,600 years and yet remaining tight, synchronized about God, about his plan, about his works and his purpose among men, as if one author was behind it because it's true. One author was behind it. Most of these people who wrote never even knew each other and lived separated by thousands of years. So writing about events they could not possibly imagine or conceive, and then writing about how all these things predicted hundreds of years before came to fruition in the birth of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who is the living word himself, God's living word, incarnate proof that these are not just words, certainly not human words, but the very words of God. Jesus is real, and we are privileged to live in a time to have witnessed these things come to pass and to be able to freely examine them. Unbelievers still cannot explain this great mystery of you know, how the Bible came to be. They continue to attack it. They will argue with it. <laughs> no matter what you say or think about, the fact remains. It is here. It is real. And you got to deal with it because it involves you. <laughs> the next definition that we're going to see about the phrase in the spirit is in the likeness or in the image of as it's shown here in Luke 1.17. Speaking about John the baptizer, it says, He will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So this is in reference in how John the baptizer was likened to Elijah in the spirit and power. Of Elijah. And another definition of in the spirit we find here in John 4, verse 24. And the definition here means in God's way, in God's likeness, in godliness, so to speak. Jesus, in speaking to the Samaritan woman at the well, told her, God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit according to God, in his likeness, in godliness and in truth. So to worship in the spirit is to worship God's way, which is the total opposite of the flesh. Paul speaks about this in Romans 8, 6 through 11, how the flesh opposes everything that is from God. Here Jesus says, not only must we worship in the spirit, but also in truth. And in John 17, 17, Jesus said that God's word is truth. So to worship in the Spirit means to be born again. In the previous chapter, John 3, verse 3 and 5, Jesus tells Nicodemus that we need to get in the Spirit. We need to be born of the Spirit. We need to be born again. Why? Well, as Paul explains in Romans chapter 8, specifically Romans 8, 7, the flesh is hostile to God. We cannot approach God in the flesh. We can only approach Him and have this fellowship with him if we are reborn. Now, God's message only makes sense to those 
who seek truth beyond their senses. We could be a kind of person that only uh, seeks to believe what we see, what we touch, what we taste, or we can be a person, as Ecclesiastes says, as Solomon revealed in Ecclesiastes, that realizes that God has set an eternity in here somewhere. And we are woken to this truth and therefore yearn for something beyond ourselves, for a righteousness, for godliness. And that's what God satisfies. And one of the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, verse 6, Jesus will say, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. And these are the people that understand that God's plan is the show of his power that saves us. As we read here in 1 Corinthians 1, 18, the message of the cross. Yeah, it's, it's foolishness to those who are perishing. It's foolishness to those who just seek to define themselves or live according to their senses. But to us, if you're awoken by the Spirit, to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. We see something beyond this tangible world. Those who yearn for truth know there is something in themselves and beyond this life. And they look forward to see the gospel and to understand the gospel, the good news of Jesus that demonstrates the wisdom and the power of God. It also reveals the love of God, the desire for God to have this intimacy with us. Jesus, the living word, he manifested himself in a tangible way to demonstrate to us this wisdom, this power, but also this gentleness of God. And as Michael shared in the Lord's Supper lesson, he was put to death in a brutal way to show the extent of what he is willing to do to call us out of this world, to call us out of the mentality of the flesh and into the kingdom of God. He was raised from the dead to prove this new covenant. This new testament is real. It has been fulfilled. All the prophecies about it were fulfilled. The manifestation of the Holy Spirit in the apostles backs up the fact that he was raised from the dead and that he is coming again. So this truth may seem like nonsense to those who live according to the flesh because, as the scripture says, the mind and the senses of people are veiled. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 3 to 4 says, even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. This phrase here, those who are perishing, we could say it's the opposite of the phrase in the spirit. Those who are perishing are the people who've decided that they don't want anything to do with God, that they just want to identify themselves with this world, with their senses, and they're limiting themselves to that, to what they can see, to what they can hear, all of this. Even though God has manifested himself, even though God already prove that he is alive and well, uh, people choose to identify with the world. So the gospel is veiled. Here in verse 4 of 2 Corinthians 4, it says, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And how does he blind them, you may ask? Temptation, sin. Look at some of the events that are happening in the world when people give in to sin, when they give in to anger, when they give in to emotions, because that's what they decide to give themselves to, that's what they decide to identify with, 
that shuts you down. Anger blinds you. Emotions tend to blind you. They tend to put a veil over truth, over sensibility. And so the God of this age knows that. He wants people to be enraged. He wants people to give in to their passion so that they cannot see the light of the gospel. And the flesh falls for it every time. The flesh is not smart. Worldliness, passions, all of these things are opposite of pursuing intimacy with your creator. And let me tell you something. If these are the things that you're giving into, you're not going to get intimate with anybody. You're not going to reap the benefits of intimacy in any relationship whatsoever because your emotions tend to blind you. The only way we can learn how to use our emotions the right way is if we listen to God. If we develop an intimacy with him, then we realize that our emotions are given to us to connect to each other, to empathize, to mourn for each other when we see horrible things happening, to feel compassion, and to help bring others to an understanding of the truth. You have to understand that the flesh is not the real you. Don't be duped into believing that lie. You can't have a relationship with God in the flesh because the flesh will perish. God is spirit. And so we must be worshipers in spirit and in truth. We're on a quest to find the real us, the real inner person. As Paul says here in speaking in uh, Romans chapter 2, verse 29, he says, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart. He was debating about who are the real Jews. Are the real Jews those who follow the law of Moses? Or are the real Jews the ones who by the Spirit are being led to really worship God and not just worship a law, not just worship a book? And so he makes that contrast here, and he highlights the fact that the real us is the one we are on the inside. If we have circumcised our heart by the Spirit. So that's the real us. When we let Jesus circumcise our heart, that veil that obscures the truth of the gospel is lifted. We're able to understand God's word. We're able to see his goodness. We're able to see his power. Here in Colossians chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, Paul explains how this circumcision happens. He says, in him, in Jesus, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self by the flesh, your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So when we recognize truth and when we Say, you know what? I am going to pursue truth. I know that there's something more than this flesh. I look at Jesus. I see his gospel. I resonate with the message God wants for me. I want to be a person of peace, of wisdom. But I need to have this veil removed. I know that my flesh is, opposes God. It's hostile to God. So how can I deal with that? Well, that's why the first step in developing an intimacy with God is after you believe, you get baptized. Because when we're baptized, we see here that our heart gets circumcised. God does something in there where he removes, he puts off, as Paul says here in Colossians 2.11, the self 
ruled by the flesh. He takes it off. And with that off, now that's why we're born again. We're baptized. We join Christ in a most intimate way, adjoining by the Spirit, giving birth to a new creation, no longer dominated by the flesh, but now by the Spirit. Now I am a spiritual person because I decided to join Jesus, and Jesus was able to take away that self ruled by the flesh, kind of keep it under control, and giving me the ability now to say yes to the things of God and no to the things of the flesh. Uh, the whole flesh is, is put off. We're raised now in newness of life, as Paul says in Romans uh, 6. So now let's look at the last uh, verse here, uh, talking about what, need, what it means to be in the Spirit. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18, Paul will say, Pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. And with this in mind, be alert. Always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. So when the self ruled by the flesh is taken out of the way, all of a sudden we become aware of a whole new reality, a whole new dimension. And so with this in mind, we can be alert about the needs of the saints, our needs spiritually, and we will turn to God now. We will turn to God to be our helper in all these times of need, as opposed to try to do things our own way. You know why? Because life is a warfare. Let's look at here what it says in Ephesians 6, 12. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. See, people out there, <laughs> they're always trying to make it about fighting other people. But that's not the reality. The reality here is that our struggle is against forces that we can't even see. And that's why we got to get ready. We got to be in the spirit to face the true enemy and not just face the true enemy, but be victorious in a fight against the true enemy. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. This is a fight that can only be won if you're in the spirit. We need to be praying in the spirit. We're not in a fight against people. Those who make it a fight against other people, they're completely deceived. They've been duped by Satan's lies, by the God of this age, into thinking that the fight is against people. We are in a fight against the powers of this dark world. Some, most of them are non-human powers. How have they come through? Well, they've come through in ideas, philosophies, trends, passions that come in part from the wickedness that is in the hearts of men, but also in parts from the spiritual forces of evil that tempt people and let, let them give in, that give themselves into these things. And the only way we can fight these things is if we have a spiritual weapon. We can't fight them when we're in the flesh. We're going to be completely run over. As you see, all you got to do is turn on the news, look at the chaos, look at the lack of peace. And I'm not just talking about some of the riots in the USA. These things have been happening all over the world at all times, an indication 
that that's not a solution. <laughs> if anything, that ignites a fire that just keeps spreading along. And the spiritual forces of evil are kind of happy. They're kind of like saying, yeah, you know, this is what we want. But we have to be smarter than that. We have to realize that in order to fight that kind of warfare, that it'll, it'll affect us because we live in this world. We need to be in the spirit. We need to be in a relationship with God. We need to seek God. We need to pray in the spirit and realize what it is that we're fighting so that we can get our armor ready. <laughs> and this whole chapter, Ephesians chapter 6, is all about the armor of God, the spiritual weapons that we need in order to fight this fight and win. It's the only way to win it because it's a fight against the spiritual forces of evil and only by God's spirit can we be protected from these and be familiar with Satan's uh, schemes. Uh, in Ephesians 6, 16, we read, in addition to all this, after having explained all the different parts of the armor of God, he uh, says, take up the shield of faith, which with, uh, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. We can see here that Satan, the evil one, he is, he and the authorities and powers of the dark world and evil, they are the ones in the heavenly realms described in verse 12. Uh, they are the ones that we are fighting against. But we, God's army, God's church, we are going to be the biggest change agents here in the world to cause good things to happen. Good things in the world are not going to happen if we resort to worldly ways of fighting which means fighting each other, fighting the establishment, fighting the law, fighting all these things. Fight, 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 fight. Where, that, where has that gotten the Middle East? Where has that gotten any other country, right? Fights go, fights come. Uh, but real change, if you notice, has been caused throughout the years, even by countries who decide to put into practice the principles we see in the Word of God. These are the ones that have caused real lasting change. Of course, sometimes people don't follow these things in the heart. They'll just use the spiritual principles perhaps to bring about change. And they are that powerful that when you do use them, they produce some change. But they fail to realize something more. It's not just to cause change in the world. Yes, we're called to cause a change, to be change agents, to spread the love of Christ. But most importantly, don't forget, brothers and sisters, that this world is temporary at best, and that where we're going is going to be a new dimension, a new realm. And right now we're being prepared for that by walking and by being in the Spirit. By fighting people by fighting the establishment, which is not how Jesus did it, we won't be really recognizing the real enemy. And at worst, you know, we're going we're gonna to allow ourselves then to become part of the establishment that perpetuates evil. Without God's armor, what's going to happen to us? We get polarized. We get swept away by all the things that we see and hear. Sometimes we get desensitized after we hear too much indifference lukewarm, but only in the spirit do we get sobered up. Do we, are we uh, awoken enough to the truth to follow God, follow in his way, in his truth, and change our attitude of mind? Only in the spirit 
can we continue to develop that intimacy with God, which is why Paul says in verse 13 of Ephesians 6, to arm yourself with the full armor of God, the belt of truth, breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of readiness, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the armor of offense, which is the sword of the spirit. That's our only offensive weapon we have. So we have to learn how to handle it, learn how to wield it. And so, as we read again here in Ephesians 6, 18, the armor is complete when we keep ourselves praying in the spirit. As he says here, pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, with what in mind? The armor of God, praying in the spirit. Be alert, be alert in the spirit. Always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Jesus shared a parable in Luke 18, a parable, uh, the parable of the persistent widow. And it says here in verse 1 of Luke 18 that Jesus told his parable uh, to show them, to show the disciples that they should not give up. They should always pray and not give up praying. And this parable of the persistent widow is it's a short parable, but it's very good. It's very illustrative of the power that we have with God. A lot of people say the power of prayer, but prayer is a tool. Prayer doesn't have power. The power comes from God, from my intimate relationship with God, from the fact that I'm choosing to connect myself to God. That's where the power is. The prayer is just a tool. It's not going to work just because I pray. Uh, this widow here in the parable, she's fighting a judge who neither feared God nor cared for people. So sometimes you may be in a situation where you're like, man, people don't care. People don't believe in God, just like this widow facing a judge who had never really cared for anyone. He was an unjust judge. Surely this would cause some people to give up. What am I going to do? This guy's not going to listen. He doesn't even fear God. What can I do in this case? But Jesus teaches us a lesson. If persistence pays off, even in a dark world, if you can bug someone long enough who's immoral, and who's an unbeliever, and eventually wear them out by the persistency of your complaints. How much more then does this work when we are in a relationship with God, when we're in an intimate relationship with God? You can wear people out even when they don't care or fear God. Are we going to wear God out? No, that's not the point here. The point we find in verse 7 and 8 of Luke 18. This is Jesus saying, will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? So this is an encouragement that God, not only is, does he seek intimacy with you, but he wants to hear from you. He wants you to develop. God's already there. You know, he knows how many hairs are on your head. He knows all of you completely. But he's looking for us to have that desire, that hunger, that thirst for righteousness, to connect to him, to cry out to him day and night. And sometimes all this 
these situations of civil unrest, situations that you look at, makes you mourn, sometimes makes you get angry. You know what? Don't, don't get angry. Yeah, you know, maybe get angry for a minute, but anger is not the solution. Remember that. Mourn for these people. Mourn for the people that are deceived by the flesh, that pursue things uh, the worldly way. Mourn for them. Pray for them. You know, ask God. He wants to deliver justice quickly and not the kind of justice that brings condemnation. That's not why he had Jesus come, <laughs> but the justice that justifies us before God, that makes us right before God, even though we're not. And that's done through the gospel message. Let's pray, brothers and sisters and friends. Let's pray for the world to wake up from this chaos and to listen to God, to listen to the message of the gospel. Yes, a lot of people might think it's foolishness because their eyes are blinded, but let's continue to pray. Let's cry out to the Lord day and night because we have that relationship with him, because we have his ear. After all, like Jesus says here, when he comes back, he wants to find faith on the earth. So he's not going to put off our prayers. He's going to answer them. And you might be surprised that some of those answers might come because you decided to do something. You decided to pray. You decided to look at things from a different perspective, not to give in to your passions, not to give in to your emotions. You decided to say, you know what? In the flesh, nothing is going to get resolved. I've got to be in the spirit. I've got to pray in the spirit. I've got to find that connection to my Lord and Savior. I got to cry out to him so that my mind and my actions now can be in line with what God wants me to do. And I can affect change on one person at a time by sharing the gospel, by letting them see what kind of person I am, a person of peace, a person of love. And brothers and sisters, it's so powerful when we're together. That's one of the reasons I can't wait till we get together again. Because when we're together, particularly in our congregation, you know, people see a lot of different faces, lots of different colors. That's a powerful message, particularly at this time. A powerful message that shows that, yes, we can be one in the Spirit because we are one in Christ Jesus. Praying in the Spirit, James says here, uh, in 4.3, sometimes you don't get what you ask for because you ask with the wrong motives. Uh, that's why we have to be in the Spirit. We can't just pray and then expect God to answer because we might have a wrong motive in there. Praying in the Spirit really involves a change of mind, a change of heart. It involves repentance. God has to take you through a process sometimes in order to help you pray in the Spirit, to let the Spirit intercede, as it says in Romans 8, 26, where it says the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for many times, because sometimes we're too angry, we're too sad uh, to know what to pray for. We're confused. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us through worldless groans. So thank God that in the Spirit, through the Holy Spirit, my prayers uh, are interceded for, and we know what we ought to pray for. So sometimes this is a process, learning how to pray in the Spirit. But the goal is to bring about change in us. The goal God has for us is to bring about this change 
where we're favoring being in the spirit over listening to the flesh, a change that he wants to bring about in every human being because God cares for all of us. So as Jesus says in Luke 18, verse 1, pray always, don't give up. Pray in the spirit, as Ephesians 6, 18 says. Pray on all occasions. Right now it's a great occasion to be praying. But don't let occasions need to happen in order for you to really start praying from the heart. Poor people, right? Sometimes in order to get us to our knees, in order to get us to really pray and fast, things got to happen. God has to shake us up. Why? Eh, we're people. But let's pray on all occasions, all kinds of prayers. And as Paul encourages here as well to remember the saints, remember each other. And remember 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, pray continually. It's a pleasure to be with you, brothers and sisters, on this afternoon. I pray that the Holy Spirit has touched you and that you desire that intimacy with God. God bless you. Thank you very much for listening. I hope the Lord gave you insight into conforming to Jesus with today's message. I always appreciate feedback. You can send me your thoughts, musings, and comments directly through the Anchor app. You can also contact me on Twitter at Kingdom underscore Saint. Walk with the Lord today and be a blessing.